Welcome to episode 5 of Unapologetic. I'm Maria. I'm Sarah. And I'm Anna. And today we want to talk about human sexuality in society. What is considered good sex, what is considered acceptable sex, and what isn't. We'll look at certain theories on this topic, some examples of religious influences that influence sexuality and taboos, and we'll make some attempts to get rid of them. Have you heard the news today? The world's become a better place. I wonder how. And everybody sings in peace. There's only one thing that we need. It's unapologetic. As always, we're gonna have a few disclaimers. First of all, we're also recording this via Zoom, so again, apologies for the technical difficulties. But second, most importantly, we are not um, talking uh, in the name of any group or, yeah, persona. It's just our opinions and the research that we've done for the episode that we are bringing you here. And on that note, we're just sociology students, so we are not professionals, and we are just bringing different perspectives, so please don't take this as the truth or anything like that. (laughs) But yeah, now we can enjoy the episode. So what's the first topic we're going to talk about? The Charmed Circle by Gail Rubin, which is a classification of what is considered good and bad sex. Yeah, it shows the hierarchical positioning of sex and represents what's, you know, um, regarded as good sex and bad sex. So at the center of the circle we found what is considered good and normal sex, the standard. So like heteronormative, uh, monogamous, procreative, uh, usually married, (laughs) vanilla sex, with bodies only. Uh, So without the use of any other... uh, Objects. Yeah, (laughs) utensile. I think what's very interesting is that I don't know, when I found this, I think this was mentioned in one of our classes, and I was like, wow, someone actually theorized about all of these things. I was so shocked because it's so taboo to the point that I didn't think this would be part of sociology. But of course it is, because it's a big part of like our, our lives. And exactly, you know, what um, sexual practices are frowned upon and which ones aren't, I guess. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see that you know, what is considered more okay is something very, quote-unquote, natural, that is just, like, uh, something that was intended by gods or whatever, that it's only bodies and anything that has to do with pleasure is not really, like, in the in the core of it. And we see that, um, you know, for example, uh, masturbating or using any sort of toys is not really acceptable. And it's so interesting because now, like we look at a, we're looking at a circle right now to to tell you about it, but now I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking how much like our lives are structured around this, like growing up, like even now, like yeah, some things you don't even think about, you just exclude them naturally because that's what you were taught. Yeah, and on what Maria was saying that this um, the inner circle, so what is good sex, is basically very purposeful you know there is an end to having sex or this like so for example 
one of the points in the inner circle is that sex should be procreative and it shouldn't be non-procreative. So you shouldn't have sex to have fun, but you should just have sex to have kids, which inherently is very heterosexual, you know. But it, it yeah, it just makes me think of how we have coded sex into this like very, uh, I guess, capitalist mode of production way of thinking, because you're basically just putting your time into creating other people that will be, I don't know, I guess, productive or like useful to society. And putting your time into something that is just for your own pleasure is not good, it's not accepted. Yeah, actually, it's so interesting to think about it in a kind of like Marxist way, that people become like, bodies become commodities just to procreate and make like the nuclear family that then are going to like produce more and Ah, oh, so interesting. Yeah, and I think what's also interesting is the fact that, uh, I mean, nowadays, I think these taboos, at least for younger people, are kind of breaking down a little bit, but we see a lot of kind of um, an exclusion of words for these things. Like, they're not talked about because it's really weird to bring it up. People look at you weird if you, like, mention something sexual that, like, was not in like part of the conversation if it comes up it's like why why would you bring that up you know and that kind of limits the language that we use for these sorts of things because we don't really have words for them and i think um something that i found really interesting was the fact that there has been a lot of kind of research done on sex um throughout history but a lot of the times this history has been erased for example um there was this Institute of Sexology in Berlin from 1919 to 1933. But uh, during World War II, the Nazis kind of had this book burning uh, in Berlin that was really big. And one of the things that they burned was the archive of this sexology institution. Um, and in that way, there was a lot of queer theory there and a lot of um, theory about eroticism and all those things and those were just erased because we're not supposed to talk about them this is something that is out of the question and in that way it kind of like silences that part of people's lives which maybe shouldn't be silenced yeah on that note uh this circle as sarah mentioned before was created by gail rubin which is part of this trend of queer theory that we talked about also in the last episode but basically that kind of happened in the 1970s and 80s. Um, but yeah, you know, 70s and 80s, that's like, I don't know what, like uh, 30 or 40 years after, you know, what Maria was just talking about, the burning of, of books. So it takes, the, the moment that you start like getting rid of this knowledge, it's not that it will instantly come back and so much is lost and so much... Um, you can cause so much damage and ignorance. I mean, this is pretty obvious what I'm saying, but you can cause so much damage and ignorance by taking away the words of people. And, you know, if you don't have the words to think about something or, or talk about something, how are you even going to think about it? So that's why we really want to make an emphasis on like the idea of having the words and knowing that these things that might be taboo about sexuality um it's it's very important it's very necessary so we can actually 
be able to think and implement it in our lives and it's not just something that you know should just be forgotten yeah and really like remember that everything is so filtered nothing that we think about even in relation to sex that should be like the most natural things for humans i guess everything is just so filtered but we we think of them as natural because there has been a process of essentialism in sex as well and and that's why when we think like normally when we think of heterosexual sex we think of the sex you know and that's why when you lose your virginity it's you know virginity doesn't even exist but it's usually related to heterosexual sex um and and then you you start wondering like then what about gay sex or queer sex in general and i think that's why every time we've mentioned i guess you guys can see us but every time we've mentioned the word normal everyone here is making quotation marks because what even is normal um or natural exactly so i think yeah as you're saying there's a lot of like mixing sexuality with biology and therefore with what is natural or unnatural but if you really think about it at the end of the day anything that you can think about it's natural i guess because mm-hmm. oh, yeah, it's possible it's a possibility so therefore it's yeah. nature it's natural <laughs> i so. love hearing that whenever someone says oh gay se- like gay people are not natural like what is gay sex and like oh, anything no, you can they think were created about. by yeah. aliens that's why they're yeah. not natural anything course. that you can do and like you can think about it's it's natural because it happens like then by definition it is natural because it happens in nature because we are the nature yeah i think i think i saw this a lot a lot recently um in greek news uh, i don't know why but like there's a lot of people that like for eurovision for example um there was this um kind of right-wing politician that was like i think eurovision is really turning into just a show to show someone that is different and all those sorts of things and it's very interesting because i think why is the existence of anything that is not quote-unquote normal or something that you see every day considered like reactionary i think that's a quite an interesting thing to think about because it makes a lot of sense to people that think the way that he thinks. It's like, oh, these people just want to show off uh, the fact that they're different. Why are they doing that? But to me, it's like, they exist. The People that are not exactly like you exist all over the world. I don't see the fact that they exist and they are portrayed in some sort of media that you will see as being some sort of reaction to you existing. So I think that's an interesting thought to have. I think... Um... Yeah, this is a very interesting line of thought and what we were thinking about when creating this episode is a lot of times many of our views are influenced of, of other people and like what is normal and not normal, again quotation marks, is influenced by religion. And of course this is not the only filter that's applied to sexuality, but we thought it was one that is very present and we're recording from the Netherlands and Greece, so, you know, religion is kind of infiltrated in many different ways in our life here, at least. So we wanted to bring this perspective now to kind of, I guess, have some more concrete examples of these filters that we're talking about, about, like, you know, influencing societal perception of sexuality. Yeah, so basically we think it's, interesting to think about the historical influence of religion in general 
uh, around the world and how that has really influenced the way that we see sex today and how there's so many taboos surrounding the topic because um, most global religions, um, especially the ones that are more focused in the West and Islam as well, for example, are very much about sex being something that you do in marriage and it's something between two heterosexual people and sodomy and even sex during menstruation is like something that you're not supposed to do. And so we really see that sex is something that is supposed to be extremely private, something that only happens within someone that you are married with. And it's very interesting. And of course, these are not the only religions. And I also did a little bit of research on like Asian religions because, um, for example, Buddhism and Taoism did not always have the same kind of view on this because there were certain sects that were very much about sort of uh, going against pleasures and trying to control your mind to be happier in that way. And so they would be celibate and sort of things. But then uh, in Taoism, I think I thought it was really interesting because there were sects that were celibate and were really about controlling yourself and finding peace and pleasure within yourself. But then there were others that were having sexual ri rituals uh, among many different people. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, so definitely the, when we talk about religion, we can't just generalize to like, yes, all religions think that sex is bad or something, you know. But definitely all religions have a position, at least, on sexuality. Yeah, and also it's important to like remember the impact that Christianity had because of uh, colonialism on other religions. Maybe even religions we're not talking about right now. But yeah, just important to remember. Yeah, so... I, I really wanted to emphasize the fact that although there's a lot of very different religions around the world, one thing that we can't really kind of ignore is the fact that Christianity came from the West, came from Europe, that was a big colonial power as a whole. Different ones were going all around um, North America and Southeast Asia and... Africa, and they were kind of bringing the influence of Christianity with them, whether they were able to kind of infiltrate and create Christian societies or not, uh, they were still influencing the societies there by implementing the ideas that sex is a taboo and we can't talk about it um, in these societies when before there might have been a lot of communities um, in these places that were really uh, a lot more open about sexuality so that's something to think about yeah i think we're definitely going to be talking about this more in the next episode but it's really important to mention how these flows of religion influence different cultures i i think something very important particularly in the case of christianity and sexuality it's the very concrete example of the myth of virginity and yeah, I think Sarah, you can explain more why we talk about this as a myth and not as an actual fact. Yeah, we really wanted to emphasize this. Um, I'm sure most of our listeners know this, but virginity doesn't exist. Um, it is like scientifically, like sociologically, a social construct um, because there's biologically like no difference between before you have sex or your sexual debut the first time and after. But especially like in Christianity, it was used to um, regulate cis women in their sexual intercourse 
Because when we think about virginity, nobody thinks of man. It's always the woman and the hymen, and it it's so emphasized like the hymen needs to remain intact before, like during uh, until you get married, because that's when you can have sex. And of course, as you can imagine, it's a very heteronormative vision of uh, sex and sexuality. Because what about gay sex? Do I never like <laughs> lose my virginity? Yeah, this reminds me of this movie called Mustang. It's about some, like, four daughters in a Turkish family. Um, and they're kind of living under the rule of their father and they're not supposed to, like, do a lot of things. Um, and at some point in the movie, the, the one of the little girls, um, before marrying, goes to have a virginity test, which... The concept of a virginity test seems so weird to me. Yeah, it just made me think of that because there's supposed to be some sort of medical examination that's supposed to show you that whether you're a virgin or not. Whereas, like, the hymen can break at any moment whether you have had sex or not. Yeah, also another way of thinking of the hymen is actually, I feel like many times we visualize it as this, like, you know... uh, Membrane? Membrane that's sealing the uterus or whatever but actually the hymen is more like a scrunchie you know the ones that you use to tie your hair so it's actually like has a lot of different shapes and it's very elastic also in different ways so you know you might also have sex and like your like heterosexual sex and your hymen might just like not break because they're very different shapes and we've constructed this idea that it's kind of like oh uh, kind of like a package and when, it, when it's open like you know mm. you're used and not new anymore or whatever but even like biologically speaking those like medical tests to test for virginity are very dubious because there is not like a correct way really of like there's not like one hymen fits all <laughs> you know it's very different mm. for everyone so even trying to test that it's itself really, really difficult. And also, like, it's it's interesting to think about, like, you know, because I feel like I, I grew up in Italy. It's a very pretty conservative country, I would say. Um, and we, like, there is a lot of talk about the hymen and, like, virginity, but it's not much related to uh, to religion anymore, I would say. Now it's becoming, like, more like a tradition. Because, for example, even if you are Christian, unless you're very hardcore, I would say, um, you still can have sex before marriage and like nobody can tell you anything um, and actually we have this um, example from Thailand of how virginity is also traditional so not necessarily uh, connected to religion so for example the, we have the example of the lemongrass girl so according to Thai superstition a virgin can ward off rain by planting lemongrass upside down underneath an open sky and the, this belief is still present today in modern Thailand. Yeah, I think in a lot of traditions around the world, the the kind of myth of a virgin being pure and innocent and able to do um, extraordinary things is quite present in many cultures around the world. I feel like in Greece that exists as well. I don't particularly know any of them, but I'm sure there exists in villages and stuff where people do some sort of like kind of witchcraft and stuff like that. Oh, and maybe it's important to mention, at least from a Eurocentric perspective, I feel like there is a degree of like race in this, um, in the sense that like innocence is usually associated to a white woman. Um, so, for example, when um, 
like a very stereotypical um, image that we have is the white innocence woman and the the brutal black man that we've seen like in medias for so many years and sometimes we still do today unfortunately so it's very important to also remember uh, how this also like creates a social hierarchy in terms of race definitely it's not just as we were saying throughout the whole podcast it's not just about sexuality or gender it's about the interrelation of all of these categories also with race also with age also with any other lens you can possibly think about so we've been talking then about different uh aspects of virginity more like biological than cultural how it's tied or it's not tied with religion but what we really wanted to emphasize is the fact that it's a myth and many times this occurs because there is not enough information for us to really like know about this topic and this comes back to what we were talking about before of sexuality being surrounded by so many taboos uh, or like I guess different aspects of sexuality being taboos to different degrees. Yeah and like we were mentioning before it's really important to have words for things because if you don't then you're not able to really understand what's going on. For example uh, we can think of the discovery of the clitoris which was so recent compared to the kind of discovery of the anatomy of a of a male and it's really interesting to think about like before there was no word for a clitoris there was no word to describe um a female organ a cis female organ um that was predominantly for pleasure or only for pleasure and so not having the word to describe that, not having the knowledge of it of its existence even, um, really influences the fact that no one is going to talk about female pleasure, for example. Um, so we think that it's very important to kind of tie this to sexual education, to think about ways in which um, it's important to talk about these things uh, in an educational setting, uh, but also in a more casual setting. Uh, we have some kind of recommendations for this. Um, there's this podcast called Sex Stories um, that uh, me and Anna have been listening to for like a year now, on and off. And, and it's really interesting because um, the host of the show is basically trying to create an open space for people to just talk about their sex lives and to have it as open as possible for uh, for there to be a sort of open discussion about what happens behind closed doors, sort of. And I think it's very interesting because it opens up the conversation for it to be less of a taboo. Another recommendation kind of we had was the TV show Sex Education, but I'm sure a lot of people have already watched it. Um, the thing is, I think sometimes the shows like these is really enlightening and and good to see that you know you can have like a comprehensive sex education or like make it more normal to have a sex education nice. because for example back home in Argentina it's been uh, there is a law that you know you every school needs to have sex education but it's just so hard to implement it because there are all these like societal kind of like constraints as we're talking of people like being reluctant to really talk about it so it's not about just having that like program created by someone in the government saying like, oh, this is what like, you know, good sex or bad sex is like, but really like 
making it more normal for people to be able to talk about it comfortably because otherwise it's just hard to impose the law and be like yeah now everyone needs to know about these things without like the i guess a smoother transition to this yeah i think in greece um i watched this ted talk at some point that was in greece talking about how there's been so many tries to get a sexual education system in the educational system and it has always been pushed against by religious groups by other groups and i think it's very interesting because like what happen what ends up happening in greece is the only discussion that exists of sex is very minimal and it's only when uh when you do biology and you get into the anatomy of the body and the genitals for example and there's a very brief discussion of menstruation and and that's kind of it at least that's like that's my experience and and so in that space it really has to do with the teacher as well because the teacher has so much influence on what they're going to say they could say but remember you can't have sex or they can say and uh, they can go in depth and talk about things that are actually more important to talk about you know and so the teacher and the way that these programs are implemented are very complex yeah and actually like i grew up without uh, sexual education in school but i'm very glad um uh, it wasn't there because i'm thinking of what kind of sexual education i would have got <laughs> and i'm like i'm so happy I didn't because like even if you are straight, it's so important that you hear about other kinds of sex. So just know that not only your experience is valid, you know. And also, like, teaching about, for example, the trans body or how some people, like, may not have, like, uh, cis genitalia. And because I feel like many people grow up and they don't know these things. But if it, if we were taught, it would be so much better. I just thought of this thing that I saw on Instagram this morning. So this girl in in Greek high school uh, basically was asked by her principal to go to his office and was uh, asked about why she was telling everyone that she was gay and why she was talking about her sexual experiences in school and that she was kind of being promiscuous and that she shouldn't be talking about these things because um, it's really damaging for heterosexual kids at school Um, and I think that's really the problem because in in these settings, if you don't create a space that allows for these discussions, it's not that there is no program, it's that even things like this can happen, and it's really problematic. Yeah, so at the end of the day, it's about having the knowledge that, you know, sexuality is out there, and there, I guess different forms of sexuality and different ways of exploring it because as we've been um, telling you if you don't have the words for it there's no way you're going to be able to think about it that's why um, for instance then we looked at certain examples of uh, I guess historical approaches to this topic and what we found for instance is the pro-sex feminist movement of the 1980s and I thought this was like super interesting because basically in the 80s feminist groups advocated that by seeing women as dispossessed individuals their sexuality was ignored or denied so in turn what they proposed was really women appropriating and re really kind of claiming that sexuality and like 
getting out of that space of ignorance and dispossession and, you know, prohibition to really, like, reclaim uh, uh, themselves as powerful, uh, knowledgeable subjects in other areas of society as well. So it's not, it's like through this sexuality, claiming themselves as equal to men. Yeah, so here you can really see in this example how um, women in the 80s and queer people as well uh, around the time were really trying to use their sexuality as a tool, as a, as a way to, to get power, to, to feel like you are a person. Because a lot of the times um, before then and even to this day, uh, sexuality is kind of appropriated for for women and for queer people and it's kind of used as a as a means to an end for male subjects and and so in a way they were kind of using the or using or even abusing their own sexuality as a means to to freedom as a means to to power and there is some sort of discussion of whether that is that is necessarily the best way to do it. Yeah, because then you end up with this movement that kind of just advocates for sexual transgression. So it's like about doing what's transgressive and to, I don't know, I guess, catch more attention and like, you know, get recognized. There was this article I read, uh, fucking your way to freedom, you know, just like really using your sexuality to get to that point in which you're like, okay, now I'm a free individual. But as you, Maria, were saying, Maybe that even involves like abusing your own sexuality, not just using it, because it might not be what you really want to do, but it's more like what, again, societal influences. You might see that this is the only way out of that place of dispossession, because by transgressing, you're claiming something that was previously denied to you. But it would be so nice if we just didn't have to go through that transgressive path sometimes, to, and still, you know, be recognized as an individual. So I guess those are kind of like the two positions that were um, present in the 80s, because also, as as much as there were these pro-sex feminists, there were also those that were like, you know, all, all forms of pornography are bad, all forms of uh, violence towards women in a sex environment. So, for example, there was an example of uh, sadomasochism being like extremely bad for feminists, because there was, like, violence toward women. So I guess it's, like, you know, both perspectives on how to be transgressive or unclaim yourself as a... your space as an individual and how to still be faithful, quote-unquote, to the feminist ideals. It's so interesting to see, like, the, the debate right now um, in the current world. For example, when you look at uh, characters like, you know, Cardi B or Nicki Minaj, like, this super hyper-feminine... Um, self-sexualizing characters and it's so interesting because on one side you have people saying uh, any kind of sexualization of women is bad but then you have the other side it's like but they're consenting to it and plus they're making money off a patriarchal system so what's wrong with that and personally I'm I'm still very like debated around it because like I really do see both perspective, but at the same time, like as we say always, everyone's just trying to survive. So you do you, you know. 
Yeah, but I think you can really see how a lot of people, whether it's now or whether it's uh, in the movement of the 80s, you see that um, there is a lot of it being reactionary to the already existing systems Um, and wanting to use your sexuality in an even aggressive way to, to get attention, to say, yeah, I did that because you wouldn't allow me to do that can be very empowering or saying, yeah, I'm gonna twerk in front of the camera because I feel like it and not because you're telling me to can also be very empowering. So I think we can really see how this perspective can be very beneficial to the people um, that choose to go that route. So yeah, basically then the pro-sex movements in the 80s saw sexual relations as a site of resistance that then continued also in the queer political ideologies of the 90s, which we really haven't talked about now, but, I mean, they influence each other. Um, in these movements, agency was not denied from women, but rather conceived as a tool to destabilize gender norms. So sexual, um, the agency women had was used to, you know, break those roles and those norms that they've been dealing with at that time but then there's also a different perspective um, which kind of involves the erotic and there's these ideas developed by Audre Lorde um, in in relation to power and knowledge that comes from the erotic so maybe Anna can tell us a bit more about the erotic because she's um, been reading Audre Lorde's book and she knows a lot about it now well I don't know if you know a lot about it but I really enjoyed reading it and um, basically, the idea that Lord proposes is that the erotic it's a source of knowledge, and as any source of knowledge, it's a source of power. And this links back to what we've been talking about of taboos and how when you deny someone of their knowledge uh, or you know yeah like the words or the knowledge to think about something, you deny them of certain power, and therefore they're oppressed. And in Lord's word, the erotic knowledge uh, has been reduced to just what happens in sexual situations. Uh, while to her, the erotic is more of this, it's about this feeling and this potential to feel and to be satisfied with oneself and what one is doing. Um, it's about really sensuality and satisfaction rather than just you know, having sex with someone for the, I guess, more sensational pleasure. So in her eyes, um, the erotic is something that you can incorporate in all aspects of your life. And it's something that is very intimate, not just to you, but also to the connections that you might have with other people. And it's a way to kind of uh, involve feelings and sensuality and satisfaction in all aspects of your life. And it's something that she believes is very important in creating power and knowledge in oneself. So in a way, I guess this could be seen as in opposition what of what we were talking before, of like, you know, fucking your way to freedom. Because here it's more about reclaiming that knowledge that doesn't have to be only dedicated to a sexual space, but still has a lot to do with those like feelings of fullness and um satisfaction but that you can apply to any other area of your life and therefore be powerful in those other areas of your life as well 
I remember when uh, when I read the erotic by Audre Lord, I was really thinking about how like everything in the world is like a standard for like men and like how the erotic is like alienated from like ourselves. You know, when you have to like take a you know leadership role, you have to act like like a man, like be very um, authoritarian and you know not not be vulnerable. Uh, but so I really love reading this because I think it's so empowering. Yeah, I think seeing sensitivity and feelings as a way to towards empowerment is kind of like what you just said, that like it's kind of the opposite of what we usually see as power and as knowledge. And so it's kind of relieving to see that someone like Audrey Lord is able to, to put in words how one's sensitivity, vulnerability uh, and feelings can really like um, work towards making someone more happy and more successful in life. And I think this ties back to what we said about, like, everything being filtered. Even when we talk about, like, oh, is a true leader. Or maybe it's just a person that fits our idea of leadership and our idea of power. But, and Lord really shows, like, how much potential that people have. But it's just not used because, like, the standards that we have, like, the norms that we have, it's just, like, designed for other types of people. Mm-hmm. yeah this is more about like really being in connection with yourself and creating uh, and being you know guiding your life from that from that knowledge um i selected this quote from the end of the by the way this was a talk that she gave in a university and i well yeah i read the transcript and i selected the quote from the last part and i think it's really good to like kind of summarize what we were talking about um, it says, when we look away from the importance of the erotic in the development and sustenance of our power, or when we look away from ourselves as we satisfy our erotic needs in concert with others, we use each other as objects of satisfaction rather than share our joy in the satisfying, rather than make connection with our similarities and our differences. To refuse to be conscious of what we're feeling at any time, however comfortable that might seem, is to deny a large part of the experience and to allow ourselves to be reduced to the pornographic, the abused, and the absurd. So then we have the really like clear connection, more than connection, like the opposition between just abusing, going for the sensations of the pornographic, going for the more like desensitized sexual experience, rather than sharing the pleasure of satisfying with others in unison. Yeah, I feel like this quote, even though um, I've heard it before you, because before when we were preparing for this um, episode, we've already like seen everything. But every time you say it, I feel like I understand it more. And I feel like it makes so much sense to like the fact of like being present in a moment and really connecting with someone else and not perceiving yourself as sort of an object or perceiving the other person as an object I think is it's very beautiful to me I just felt like saying because I really I really appreciated the the quote <laughs> thank you Maria yeah so just as a last link to what we've been talking about these ideas by Audre Lorde can be linked with the taboo that we talked before and how suppressing satisfaction and feelings um, are a way in which our sexuality can be silenced or like certain aspects of our sexuality can be silenced 
So by having a very reduced idea of what the erotic is, we keep silencing our sexuality or kind of not letting it go to its fullest potential. Especially for queer and female subjects, we really see how um, a lot of the time sexuality is not something that you're supposed to have and it's something that you really should not showcase and it's something that should be silenced. And so by looking at it from the Lord's perspective, we can really see how that can really cause someone to to have a lack of power because there is a part of oneself that is really silenced and pushed down, which creates, you know, insecurity, creates uh, conflict. Um, so, yeah. Now we can get to the takeaways of the episode as we do every time. The first takeaway we want to take is that there are a lot of taboos in relation to sexuality, but those are historically and culturally dependent. So we have to be aware of them so we can know what we are being deprived the knowledge of. The second one is that you can know what you don't have the words for. So always be mindful of everything is filtered and we have words for only what we accept. And that sexuality, um, from both perspectives that we've looked at today, uh, can be a, a source of power and a source of knowledge that cannot be um, completely silenced because it's something that is kind of innate in human beings. So we hope that you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. I think this time is more than ever important because we're going to be posting a lot of these um, images that we talked about, like the circle by Robin Gale and other things that was really hard to describe in this episode without visuals. So check that out and otherwise we'll see you next month. Bye! Bye.